0: This is the cable. Big bid on ten-year treasuries over the last week. Is this just a political fight, some political theatre? A lot of people saying no, thank you, step back. You're saying get in. Why? Your connection
1: from the London market close to the US market action.
0: It is too easy just to blame Brexit. Surely it can't be anything means bye bye bye. The cable. The historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With
1: Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good afternoon. Good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to the cable typically from the London close, but there isn't one today. To the US action, live on DAB Digital Radio. It has just gone 5pm in the city. Of course, the FTSE 100 closed for the bank holiday weekend. In Europe, though, the action continues. Just a little bit softer across the continent with the equity benchmark in Frankfurt, Germany, down by about four-tenths of 1%. In the United States, very little price action. We go nowhere on the S&P 500, and we are dead flat on the S&P 500 and the Dow. If you're looking at the FX market, it's a weaker dollar story. That's helped send Sterling higher for a third straight session. We print 129.27, up by about a third of 1% against the US dollar. So that's the story in the equity market and in FX as well. Let's get you up to speed on the top stories. Here's Bloomberg's Charlie Pellett.
2: And I thank you very much. And we begin on the continent. The European Union's chief Brexit negotiator, Michel Barnier, calling on the UK to focus on the issues that need to be dealt with before talks can move on to trade. As he has warned Britain that time is running out, uh, meeting uh, Brexit Secretary David Davis for the third round in divorce talks in Brussels. Barnier said the EU needs to know where the UK stands on issues such as the financial settlement. The European Central Bank slapped the first penalty on a bank since it started supervising euro area lenders in 2014, charging Ireland's permanent TSB group holdings two and a half million euros for breaching liquidity requirements. And the big story, of course, in the United States, Houston has never seen a storm like this this one, it may get worse. It is now a tropical storm, but Harvey continues to pound southeastern Texas. Some areas may get more than four feet of rain before the downpour ends later in the week. That is the latest from the news desk. Jonathan Farrow, back to you. The pictures are absolutely stunning.
0: It's a slow-burning crisis that's going to take days to play out and possibly weeks, months, and maybe even years to be addressed and corrected. Uh, Charlie Pellet, we appreciate that. We'll catch up with you in just a little bit later in the program, maybe in 30 minutes or so to. Time. Uh, we begin with the top story in the UK, British Prime Minister Theresa May under some pressure once again on two fronts this time as Brexit talks resume. EU negotiators want May to reveal her hand and the opposition Labour Party is trying to lure May's critics to its side. Labour is pushing May to keep the UK and the EU single market during the long transition following March 2019. To discuss through the next 25 minutes, 30 minutes from London is Heather Burke from the Bloomberg Markets Live blog, and in Berlin. Richard Jones, FX rate strategist for Bloomberg Markets Live. Mr Jones, Sterling stronger today off the back of what is probably just a weaker session for the US dollar. But you start to wonder whether if it's your ambition to have a hard Brexit, how difficult that's going to be uh, to execute that and how difficult it will be to eventually realise those goals.
3: Oh, gosh, John, where to start? Um, I think the important thing to – if you're talking about the currency, yeah, I think you're right. This is a weak dollar story. And, and what we've seen of late is when the dollar goes down, it goes down more against the euro than it does against the pound, which is to say the euro sterling is trading higher, the pound is weaker against the euro. And that's been the case – gosh, I'm just looking at the uh, Bloomberg terminal here. And it, it's, it's it just – for a very long time, uh, any sterling rallies against the euro have been very short and they've been very shallow and that's and that's sort of the dominant theme now when it comes to the to the negotiations i think barnier uh, has been consistent i think what charlie Pellet was saying earlier is very true that time is running out it's it, it you know it, and and it, they they're, they've been very consistent on the sequencing so that they, they get the divorce bill agreed before they start to look to the longer term issues that i think the uk is looking to get on with so i don't know it, it, it's it's been one of those things where one of the criticisms of the UK has been that they haven't even really started negotiating with the EU yet. There's been negotiating amongst the, themselves and and the news, uh, this news about what the Labour Party is doing uh, to me only thickens that plot and makes it that much more difficult for the UK to come up yeah. with a coherence. And, and all of this, I think, really just sort of stems from the, the disappointing general election result for the Prime Minister. Her political hand has been weakened and so a lot of these things are sort of making it difficult to, to, to move ahead in the negotiations.
0: I also wonder whether actually... The- This is probably the most prudent course of action. This is just a sensible decision to stay in the single market through the transition period instead of creating something that maybe doesn't exist at the moment. That ultimately, if you want to leave the EU, fine. This isn't a political suggestion. It's just that it's one that makes the most sense during the transition period to be a part of something that already exists and something you're already a part of.
3: Well, I would the one thing I would say to that is and and it goes back to the the initial point you made when you asked the question is that what how are the hard brexiters going to swallow this because and 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 if if I think if if the whole um, 15 past 15 months or so has taught us anything is that the hard brexiters certainly within the the Tory party seem to be uh, calling the shots and yeah. and I, I, I just don't I'm not sure how you know any sort of um, Remaining in the single market or in the customs union post uh, the spring of 2019 is something that will fly, and yeah. it's all to play for. And 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 you know that's not very far away. We're already what four or five months into this I, process. I
0: just I just think if you've learned anything, one thing from from this experience since the vote is that things take a lot longer than you thought they were going to take, yeah. and if they're going to take a whole lot longer than you thought. Then maybe this is the most prudent course of action. That if you want to make Brexit work, focus on making Brexit work, and not this kind of arbitrary goal of after March 2019, you're not the part, not a part of anything. That ultimately, it's a long-term story that's going to take decades to prove that that it was the right decision, if you truly believe that it will be, and to make that work remain a part of the single market for the transition period. At least that's an argument that is probably resonating with a lot of officials right now. As for the consumer, Heather, looking at the story in the United Kingdom, we've spent so much time now discussing about the squeeze on real incomes that wages aren't keeping pace with, inflation what is the current health of the general UK economy as the politicians seem to make a mess on both sides as to what they ultimately want out of this?
4: I mean, look, you know, I'm sure for the UK consumer what you know, this uncertainty, you know, hard Brexit, you know, soft Brexit, I mean, if you know, for on your everyday basis what happens probably doesn't you know come into your day-to-day shopping decisions? I think the key point for the consumer is that you've still got you're a very squeezed consumer. You've had rising inflation because of the weak pound, and you've had you know stagnant wage growth. And frankly, the more uncertainty that goes out with are we having a hard or soft Brexit, the more possible possibility for a weak pound. So you know while the idea of where we're going to be for Brexit maybe will, um, you know, add to consumer uncertainty. Really, the biggest effect is how it continues to affect the, the pound, how it continues to affect business investment decisions, rather than, oh, I'm you know, not going to buy this new car because of Brexit.
0: Well, Heather, how long does it take for the, the business investment slowdown to really take a bite out, out of the economy? Is that a next-year story, a five-year story, a 10-year story?
4: I mean, if we're in uncharted territories, it's really hard to say. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, right now you've, you know, you keep hearing stories every other week about banks moving jobs over to Frankfurt, you know, uh, Dublin, you know, if we come to, if uh, negotiations come to a more um, inclusive immigration deal, some of that might change. So, you know, I, if. I think for businesses, I think there's a lot of um, hesitancy to invest in new plant, you know, new um, expansion, when because it's not even just are you going to be able to get the labor. It's also what are your tariffs going to be? You know, there's a lot of different things that we just don't know. And I frankly think that the whole, you know, the U.K. wants to get on to negotiating trade. I don't think that's going to happen until things like the divorce bill, Yep. Um Immigration rights and the Northern and the Irish border are settled. And right now, you haven't really had the, um, yep. the UK come out at all about the divorce
0: bill. Bloomberg's Heather Burke alongside Richard Jones. Stick it with me. Up next, Amazon cutting some prices big time at Whole Foods. This is Bloomberg Radio.
1: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good afternoon. Good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You're listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5.10pm in the city. I was in New York this weekend. It was a Saturday. I went to buy some avocados from a store called Morton Williams and I noticed that one avocado was around about $4.50. Yes, one avocado was $4.50. And I wondered what the future would hold for a store that was trying to charge $4.50 for an avocado. I wonder and explore and ponder that question even more today as Amazon is quickly putting its stamp on Whole Foods, the world's largest online retailer, spent its first day as owner of a brick and mortar grocery chain. Slashing prices. Some items were reduced by more than forty percent. Amazon just closed, of course, its purchase of Whole Foods today for thirteen point seven billion dollars. To discuss in London, Heather Burke from Bloomberg Markets Live blog, and in Berlin, Richard Jones, FX rate strategist for Bloomberg Markets. Heather Burke, avocados in Whole Foods now. I can tell you because I've been today, straight after the TV show, were a dollar and ninety nine cents. That is you the can tank price right now.
4: To toast with that.
0: Yeah. What is what is the future? Of everyone else, if this is the future of Whole Foods,
4: um, you know Amazon's um, purchase of Whole Foods has been a game changer for um, for the grocery industry. Um, you know, grocery you know grocery in general is a really tight margin story. It's it's and you've had a you're getting over a spate of food deflation. And you've had grocery stocks on both sides of the Atlantic, Tesco, Ahold Del Haze, Kroger, hit by this. And, you know, Amazon's able to eat the margin to plunge into this. And it really, really has brought out um, who are the winners and losers. And I think that it's this effect on food retailing is unprecedented. You know, your Walmart, your Costco, I think will be fine, but it's your s- smaller regional chains that I think are really going to have to figure out how to differentiate themselves. And I think it's just, you know, Amazon is considered the category killer. I mean, yeah. every every time, you know, it seems that there's a report verified or otherwise, Amazon's getting to food delivery, um, auto supplies, etc. companies plunge on it. Um, my colleagues at GADFLY in June published a chart saying that, Amazon helped to raise $69 billion of collective stock market valuation from companies and affected industries during the last year. Yeah. And that was just after they announced Whole Foods. This, that was before the price cuts were announced on Thursday, which sent grocery stocks down some more.
0: Heather, it is scary. At the same time, I wonder how justified it is to be this widespread. For this to take a chunk out of the market caps of UK retailers, where Whole Foods don't have a presence and the UK retailers have a pretty strong e-commerce product, why is this spreading so much? Is it a sentiment issue as opposed to a fundamentals issue when we go outside of the United States?
4: Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's a sentiment issue. I mean, a couple of things to keep in mind: in you know, Whole Foods in the UK is only about six stores. Um, food retail overall is less than 10%. Uh, um, online retailing is about less than 10% of, of grocery shopping. Um, I think it's more expanded in the U.K. than in the U.S., and it's growing. I mean, you have some pure plays like Acado, which that got hit when um, Amazon announced um, earlier this year, last year, it was expanding Amazon Prime. I mean, you know, it's it's not in the U.K., this is not going to affect the everyday um, Tesco, Ocado, um, you know, um, Sainsbury, but it just underscores the sentiment of how Amazon in the past 20 years has changed
0: the way we shop. It's an incredible story and it's going to take years to play out. And I think for anyone in the United States who's wondering what the future of retail is when these uh, grocery stores are at war, have a look at what's happened in the United Kingdom over the last 10 years and the experience of stores like Tesco and Sainsbury's, not just in the face of e-commerce, but in the face of Aldi and Lidl. And of course, Aldi and Lidl now making a, a move over to the United States as well. What a story and Heather Burke and Richard Jones no doubt will be on top of it over the next couple of years here at Bloomberg as well. Next up on this programme we are going to bring you a conversation about Jackson Hole. Lowflation, no problem. We're going to focus on post-crisis regulation. Really? We're going to get into that in just a moment. Next up on a Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio.
1: This is The Cable. With Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
0: There are certain guitar riffs that make you sing the first line of the song because you just know. What a tune. Good afternoon to the City of London. Enjoying your bank holiday weekend, I hope. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable, live on DAB Digital Radio, 5.18pm in the city, a very quiet City of London today. The Bank of Japan's governor has pledged to forge on with very accommodative monetary policy, apparently, speaking exclusively to Bloomberg TV. Haruhiko Kuroda also warned that his inflation target remains distant and the current pace of growth in the world's third largest economy looks unsustainable.
2: 4% growth is, is, uh, is, is excellent, but uh, we don't think 4% growth can be sustained. Uh, around 2% growth is likely. Under this uh, 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 amount of growth, uh, inflation rate would gradually uh, climb up toward uh, 2%.
0: Joining me now from London is Heather Burke from the Bloomberg Markets Live blog. And in Berlin, Richard Jones, Bloomberg's FX and rate strategist from the Markets Live team as well from Germany. Uh, Rich, let's start with you. And I want to talk about the Wall Street conversation that we always have around an issue like inflation. And it goes a little something like this. If inflation's low, it must mean the central bank must lose some policy more and must mean that rates must remain low for longer. But in Japan, GDP per capita is fine their ultimate problem is demographics it's an aging population a declining population a declining working age population as well and i sit here and wonder what an earth monetary policy has got in the in the toolbox to deal with that Uh, what can they do and, and why are we still having a very narrow wall street conversation about something that is a lot bigger than what we're talking about in say europe or the united states
3: well, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that what uh, what we what the, the, the the appropriate policy prescription for that is probably monetary policy and fiscal policy working in tandem. Now, if you and I had a penny for every time Mario Draghi said that, and, yeah. and said that, you know, central banking is not the only game in town, there needs to be more joined up thinking between fiscal policy, uh, structural uh, reforms and monetary policy, but Monetary policy has done so much of the heavy lifting for such a long time in Japan, in Europe, in the United States. And, and you know, I think one of the interesting things that Kuroda said in that interview with Kathleen Hayes is, is that there is uh, Japanese businesses and labor unions uh, exhibit a deflationary mindset. Yeah. And that there that's the problem. And, and and I think that's not just unique to Japan either. I think that, yeah, the U.S. is closer to its target than uh, than Japan is. Europe is heading in the right direction, slowly but surely, towards its target on inflation. But everybody's inflation is far too low, given where the unemployment is. But Rich,
0: there's a deflationary mindset because there's a declining working age population. There's no other reason for that. If you're a business you can see what's coming down, and that's less demand because there's a declining working age population. I mean, this isn't complex, and I don't know why why we sit here and think that these central bankers have this magic wand and can fuel animal spirits in the economy when ultimately the fundamentals, the headwinds, A huge. And I think, why is this a problem? Why is it a problem when GDP per capita is fine in Japan? I look at Switzerland. I used to go and interview the Swiss National Bank president, and I'd um, go inside and we'd interview him, and he'd say, you know, we need to do more. That The uh, strong currency is a problem. And I'd ask him whether he's going to cut rates further. We'd have this very narrow conversation about low inflation, central bank inflation targeting, and what they can do to address it. And then I'd go outside whether it was in Zurich or Bern, and I'd watch people being chauffeured around in brand-new Mercedes-Benz, and I'd ask myself whether Switzerland has really got it tough right now because of a a strong Swiss currency or whether actually the economy's just fine and we're stuck in this narrow conversation about low inflation. Why is low inflation such a problem?
3: Well, I I think low inflation is such a problem because the central banks know how to deal with strong inflation. They've slayed that dragon before, you know the likes of Stan Fisher and all these uh, clever academics have written books about it, and they know how to deal with that. Central banks do not know how to deal with deflation, I, I, no. I th- and I think that's the problem. And 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 you know, look at the whole in the previous segment talking about Amazon. I mean, those price oh, yeah. cuts are, are not unique to the food industry, right? No, they're Anything.
0: not. But try try telling try telling Main Street that those price cuts. Or a bad thing.
3: Correct, yeah. And that, and that's where the disconnect is. But it's because I think central banks conceptually do not know how to deal with that mindset. They know how to curb inflation. They don't know how to fight deflation.
0: Yeah, I, I just don't understand it. And what I thought was really interesting from Jackson Hole was, yes, they sidestepped monetary policy, but this defense of the post-crisis regulatory regime from Fed Chair Janet Yellen, it, it strikes me as someone that's trying to hold on to the post-crisis regulatory regime because they know that if they get deregulation, if they really get things bubbling away on Wall Street and in the city of London, they've got a problem. And they've got a problem because of the kind of stimulatory policies that they've done. The fact that we've got a $4 trillion balance sheet, the Fed, the fact we've got negative 40 basis points over the ECB as a deposit rate. They know many of these imbalances, Rich, many of these misallocations in markets, the distortions we see in prices every day. They're responsible for them.
3: Yeah, not only are they responsible for them, but what do they do when... Uh, there's very little they can do to actually change the that dynamic. I mean if you know if if deregulation does happen um, and 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 we get repeats of what we've seen in the past with rates this low, asset prices where they are now, I think central banks are a little bit worried about that.
0: Yeah, uh, it's a remarkable situation. Guys, I really appreciate your time today. It's been really, really interesting to discuss it. The idea that we can have a company like Amazon take over Whole Foods, cut prices and manage to have a conversation about monetary policy at the other side of it because the two worlds are somewhat connected just goes to show how interlinked the global economy really, really is. Uh, Richard Jones, our FX market strategist for Bloomberg Markets Live and, of course, to Heather Burke from the Bloomberg Markets Live blog, In London. Guys, thank you very much. Heather, enjoy what's left of the long bank holiday weekend. Richard Jones, thank you for giving us your time, sir. We'll have you back on very, very soon on the programme, on the cable, right here on Bloomberg Radio. Next up, we take it to the United States, where a natural disaster continues to unfold in the 4th biggest city in America. It's Houston, Texas. A tropical storm Harvey continues to batter southwestern Texas with record amount of rain. We'll hear more about the impacts on the energy sector down in Texas and the broader economy as well. For the City of London, you are listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio.
1: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Ferro From the London close usually, but of course London is just closed today. You're listening to The Cable, live on DAB Digital Radio. To the US action we go, and this is how we trade. The FTSE 100 closed today, of course, for the long bank holiday weekend in the United Kingdom. Over in Frankfurt, Germany, a softer session emerges with stocks down about four-tenths of one percent. In the United States, following the biggest weekly gain on the S&P 500 since the middle of July, we come back just a little bit, down by about a tenth of one percent likewise on the Dow as well. In the FX market, largely a weaker dollar story, stronger euro, stronger yen. You can throw in a stronger pound in there as well. We're up a third straight day on a cable rate to 129.30, up by about four tenths of 1%. So that's your cross-asset story in FX and equities. Let's get you some top stories, shall we? Here's Bloomberg's Charlie Pellett. And
2: I thank you very much, Jonathan Farrell. Let us begin on the continent where the European Union's chief Brexit negotiator, Michel Barnier, is calling on the UK to focus on the issues that need to be dead dealt with before talks can move on to trade as he warned Britain that time is running out. Meeting Brexit Secretary David Davis for the third round of divorce talks in Brussels, Barnier said the EU needs to know where the UK stands on issues such as the financial settlement. The European Central Bank slapped its first penalty on the bank since it started supervising euro area lenders in 2014, charging Ireland's permanent TSB Group holdings 2.5 million euros for breaching liquidity requirements. And in Houston, uh, the tragedy continues to unfold. Houston has never seen a storm like this one, and it may get worse. Tropical Storm Harvey, it has been downgraded from a hurricane, but it continues to pound southeastern Texas. Some areas may get more than four feet of rain before the downpour ends later this week. Record flooding has turned highways into rivers. Har- Harvey has crippled Houston's energy industry, which refines 40% of the gasoline in the United States. That is the Latest from the news desk, Jonathan Farrow, Back to you. It truly
0: is, Charlie, a natural disaster unfolding before our eyes in the uh, the fourth largest city in America. Harvey has crippled the core of the industry industry in the United States. The storm has made landfall in Texas this weekend, of course, and it continues to drench the region. It will be a slow burning crisis that would unfold for days and days from here and potentially take months even years to correct in some areas it's halted about one-fourth of oil and natural gas production in the Gulf of Mexico and more than 10% of the country's refining capacity the Houston area as Charlie was discussing producing 40% of US gasoline supplies the Texas governor Greg Abbott says oil companies were ready for the storm and will restart production once floodwaters recede to discuss joining me now is Mike Regan the senior editor and lead blogger for Bloomberg Bloomberg Markets Live, and Vince Piazza. I'm very pleased to say is going to join us for a moment. Senior Energy Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, Vince, let's begin with you, and just talk about the severity of the storm, what we were expecting versus what we got, and how much longer this could play out for.
5: Well, I think early on uh, the uh, we didn't know what to expect, but obviously the uh, storm became a, a very uh, a, a, a very dangerous uh, Category for, uh, Yes, it has weakened. Um, It is a tragedy, uh, significant devastation uh, throughout uh, Texas. Uh, But uh, if we take a step back and think about uh, previous um, weather events and compare it to this, um, what do we have to go off of? So if you think about peak Gulf of Mexico oil production back in 2009, roughly a third of the U.S. production came from the Gulf of Mexico. Now it's roughly about 18%. And now Gulf of Mexico produces roughly 4% of the natural gas uh, for the US. So less dependent on that Gulf of Mexico area, uh, which is uh, a good thing, uh, given the extent of uh, the damage that usually these uh, storms have. So um, that is one positive. Um, in terms of the the time that it hit, um, we are in the back end of summer drive season. Yeah. So demand will wane. Uh, we are picking up September and October uh, maintenance season uh, for the refiners. So they will be in turnaround mode. So from the demand side, demand will have been curtailed. Yeah. Um, so that's that's one uh, a silver lining um but going forward uh the storm is is still with us um it uh, it could strengthen uh, and it could take down um other facilities in Louisiana uh, but in general what we have heard from some of the refiners uh is that for, you know Valero for example um it's two refiners and one in Corpus Christi uh, and it's a three rivers uh, refinery um have not suffered substantial uh, damage. Yeah uh, uh, so I think that's a positive as well. Um, so it seems as though that relative to the strength, at least the facilities have been able to uh, withstand uh, the uh, severity. It's still too early to tell. yeah uh, but it seems as though that that um, we will have an intermediate pop, obviously. Uh, we are seeing uh, pressure on gasoline, but Gulf Coast Pad 3 seems to be fairly well supplied at this point. Uh, crude oil stockpiles are roughly 24, 25% above the five year norm. Yeah. Gasoline is roughly 11% above the five year norm. So the inventory is there, did not get destroyed. I um, mean, yeah. it didn't evaporate. Uh, what will be the challenge is is on the infrastructure side, the bottleneck. Um, the damage to pipelines and damage to terminals and damage to port facilities, uh, for example, uh, the port of Corpus Christi. Yeah. Uh, it is a very significant export terminal. In Q1, we exported roughly 22 million barrels uh, from uh, the Corpus Christi port, and that's roughly 30% of the U.S. total.
0: Yeah, I, I think what you're talking about is something that we also had a discussion with Michael Cohen of uh, of Barclays about earlier on Bloomberg TV. There's kind of three separate areas that this will really take a hold in. It's the supply story, the demand side of the story, and then ultimately the trading, the supply of these goods going forward, how you trade Mm -hmm. what's already been produced given that those ports have shut down. Mike Regan, Vince and I were having this discussion on TV earlier. You've got the short-term story, then a more medium to longer-term story. Is that what the market's now got to digest
6: I think so. You know, obviously, the estimates on the insured losses are still very much written in pencil. I don't think anyone has a real firm grasp on how much this is actually going to cost. There's the story in Bloomberg out has uh, one estimate of about thirty billion, and other guys saying as much as a hundred billion. Um, so, in, it, from that perspective, it sounds a lot worse than what people went into the weekend thinking it would be. Uh, yeah. Insurance stocks across the border down pretty good. Uh, especially your, your reinsurance stocks like Everest three here is down 3%. Travelers is down about 3%. Um, you know, like, uh, we were talking about with Vince earlier, uh, before we went on air, it's, it's really so much of a humanitarian tragedy and, and it, it, that's such the story now. Um, you know, they're saying perhaps as little as less than a third of the losses will, will be insured. So, um, you know, a lot of people without and flood this, insurance. And this,
0: Mike, is because they were insured for the wind damage and, and not the flood damage?
6: Yeah, if you, if you don't have flood damage, uh, your homeowners uh, is probably not going to cover it. Um, so there's you know, there's always the chance that the federal government will step in with some kind of bill. I uh, remember in, in Sandy, now I'm from New Jersey, so my yeah. social media feed of my friends from New Jersey are already pointing out- Remembering the Texas uh, lawmakers remembering that voted the against Texas the lawmakers lawmakers funding who funding for Sandy. Who voted against it. And it's not exactly the, you know, even apart from that, uh, yeah. those long memories, it's not exactly the easiest time- to get Congress uh, together to, to pass uh, an emergency bill or something like that. But you would have to expect uh, that that's a good possibility, that, that a lot of these uninsured losses will, will get some help from the government. One would hope, but we'll, we'll see about that. But I think in general, from the market's perspective, it, it's kind of sort of like Katrina. We're going to have sort of a hit to economic growth yeah. in the short term, but then uh, more than make up for it with the rebuilding uh, in the later quarters. Mike Reagan.
1: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. From the London close to the US action, you're listening to The Cable live on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5.40pm in the city. In the world of technology, Uber is turning to the travel industry for its next chief executive. According to people familiar with the matter, Expedia's Dara Khosrowshahi will be named a CEO of the ride-hailing company. Kaz Rashahi is considered a seasoned dealmaker. He'll succeed Uber co-founder Travis Kalanick, who was forced out by scandal after, scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal to discuss Mike Regan, the senior editor and lead blogger for Bloomberg Markets Live. So, Mike, we thought it would be Jeff out of GE, then he sort of said he wasn't in the running anymore. Over the weekend, he was Travis Kalanick's guy. Mm-hmm. Then we thought it was going to be Meg Whitman of HPE. She was in the running, and she was Benchmark's girl, which of course Benchmark, the big shareholder in Uber. And then I assume we think the Expedia CEO is like the guy in between that sort of resolves some of the tension between Benchmark and Travis Kalanick. Would I be right saying that? Uh,
6: that's that sounds about right. I mean, you know, obviously this is a, a pivotal time for Uber to bring in someone. Uh, new to lead the company, not only because of the sort of scandals uh, that forced uh, Kalnick out, but, I, you know, everyone's looking at this company as probably the next massive IPO uh, to hit the market in the next couple of years. And you know, a lot of questions of whether it's uh, rival Lyft will, will get to the IPO market before them. I think, you know, you pr- probably want to be the first of the two to get to get to IPO, I would guess. Um, but boy, what a payday! Two hundred million. Uh, it looks like uh, when they pay off his unvested stock options at Expedia, and you know, interesting. Like you pointed out, that he was a uh, a deal maker. Um, sort of helmed the uh, the acquisition by Expedia of Home Away for almost four billion, and then a one point six billion purchase of Orbitz. So clearly uh, someone that's comfortable working on deals with Wall Street um, is probably a good sign for Uber as they do contemplate whether you know now's the time to go public. Um, I'm not sure if you, you know if you're Uber, how many sort of bolt-on acquisitions you can make? Um, you know obviously overseas, outside of the US there's probably some better opportunities. you know China and Russia have have competing services um in the u.s i'm you know i'm not sure where they could go as far as acquisitions maybe you would look at, a, no. at one of the struggling car rental companies I but don't i also know. think
0: Mike, this company is so far away from from doing any big acquisition anytime yeah. soon i mean if you think about what he's got to address he's got to address one the money's the cost of the company's losing money yeah um two employee morale absolutely sucks right now right uh, and then he's got to sort some of the regulatory issues as well that he's got with amazon and um, with google rather um th- I don't see how he's going to do them anytime soon or very quickly. And he, then he's got to clean up the whole company and take it public at the same time. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, he's got to deal with that issue between one of the biggest shareholders and the founder of the company, Travis Kamenick. Yeah. This guy's got a massive job before this company <laughs> it, goes public, it really hasn't does. he? He really does though. So, you know, a lot of times just the
6: simple act of bringing in a new CEO sort of wipes the slate to some degree of, of, of some of their past problems. Um, so uh, we'll see if that happens. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it, it, he's certainly an uphill battle, and you know, the, the knock on Uber is always, uh, you know, what is the barrier to entry? Could someone else write an app that does the same thing and, and start hiring drivers? Um, you know, how much of a moat around their business do they have? I'm guessing it's decent. I mean, I, I don't see anyone really stepping up to the game, but you never know if some if some big tech giant like Google or, or Apple or, or, or you know anyone with that t- type of cash wanted to get into it. Um, he could he could have competition on his hands too but uh for 200 million I I, I guess he's up for the challenge Mike Regan the
0: senior editor and lead block for movemo Move
6: Markets life 200 million a year is that what he's getting now, that's his payday including the uh the stock options we'll see what he gets uh, 200
0: mil. 200 mil you, you could do that you could be the ceo of uber or you could um go into a ring with conor mcgregor and be called floyd mayweather yeah I which guess. one's a tougher challenge i don't, I, know. I d- I don't know i don't know I, is, is being floyd t- hard I, is that <laughs> is that tough i don't maybe it maybe it is mike regan sticking with me up next is the week ahead right here on bloomberg radio what a week we've got in store and we get payrolls friday it's september this week already you listen to bloomberg radio this is the cable
1: This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow on Bloomberg Radio.
0: Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. I'm Jonathan Farrow. You are listening to The Cable from the London close to the US action. Live on DAB Digital Radio. It's just gone 5.48 p.m. in the city of London, your long holiday weekend. I hope many of you that have got one in London are enjoying it right now. I'm going to bring you some highlights for the week ahead. There are quite a few of them. On Tuesday, we'll get some consumer confidence numbers. Um, In the United Kingdom, I'm going to go through the data that we get from the U.K., as well, Not much UK data, a lot coming from the United States, but that consumer confidence number will be interesting as we get that from the United States. Um, on Wednesday, we'll get you some US GDP numbers as well. Another reading of that will come to you later in the morning, later in the afternoon in the UK. On Wednesday as well, the UK Prime Minister Theresa May begins a three-day trip to Japan with a delegation of company executives to, quote, showcase the strength of British business. This, of course, amid continuing Brexit talks with the EU. May will meet Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and and the Emperor Akihito as well. On Thursday, U.S. personal spending data will come through. On Friday, this is what we've got for you. Automakers will deliver some of their sales numbers. Look out for that. You'll get a second round of negotiations over NAFTA, of course, a North American Free Trade Agreement. They take place in Mexico City. Canada, Mexico, and the United States have issued a joint statement saying they'll... Uh, see a quick deal before politics overtakes the agenda next year. Um, I, I don't know if you saw the Axios piece, Mike Regan, that Trump um, reportedly said in the Oval Office, the president, I want tariffs, get me some tariffs, was what he said in the Oval Office to, <laughs> to the other people inside it. I, I urge you to go and read Axios' account of a trade conversation that took place in the Oval Office. Bring it me is, all the tariffs. It, it is bemusing. Um, <laughs> on Friday, the big data point of the week, is U.S. payrolls. Looking forward to that. Mike Regan, I say I'm looking forward to it, but I sense, I feel, it's going to be the same conversation we've had for the last several months now, which is strong headline numbers and wage growth that's kind of okay, but not stunning. Yeah, that's
6: sort of what the uh, estimates leading into it look like. Uh, Change in private payrolls estimated at 170,000, hourly earnings uh, 2.6% year over year. So sort of a similar story that we've seen uh, of late. I'm, you're right about that consumer confidence number before that, a couple days before that. That that should be interesting. I mean, uh, you know, as much as we talk about the Trump effect sort of leaking out of the market and there not being much you can point at saying uh, as far as the Trump trade still being alive, that consumer confidence number has remained elevated. Uh, you know, 120 or so in that conference board is, is very high. That's a strong number. In the Bloomberg weekly survey, uh, we had a blog post on this last week, pointing out the dichotomy. You know, we the Bloomberg we survey and include whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, and no surprise, I guess, but Democrats' confidence hasn't really hasn't really <laughs> gone as sky high as the Republicans, but the Republicans are really holding in there and. Um, that's kind of surprising to me that that confidence has held on uh, this long. And maybe it's saying something. You know, Maybe that's enough to keep people spending, yeah. keep people
0: buying stocks. Uh, but we'll see. I do want to discuss some of the palace intrigue that's dominated conversations here in the United States and over the weekend as well. There was an interesting interview, Mike, and I don't know if you got to see it, between the Secretary of State – Rex Tillerson sitting down with uh, Chris Wallace of Fox News. He was asked about American values and whether the president and this current government represented American values. And Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, turned around and said the State Department represented American values. He was keen to emphasise that. And on the follow-up question, he was asked about the views of the president. And we had the Secretary of State turn around and pretty much answer the question in the following terms the president speaks for himself. Now, usually you would expect someone in a position of um, secretary of state to be in a position where they can assert quite emphatically and with conviction that the president of the United States represents American values. And I think many people will look at this conversation and think, maybe you're reading too much into it, maybe you're not, depending, of course, where you sit on the political spectrum. But what it's highlighted once again is potential tension between the President of the United States, Mike, and someone that should be very close to him. We didn't just have that from the Secretary of State. We've also had that with Gary Cohn, of course, taking a very important lead as an economic advisor to the President of the United States as well. Also, he failed to really highlight the President's response to Charlottesville in any kind of positive light at all. That tension, does it bleed into policymaking at all?
6: I think you it's definitely a risk that it will, for sure. Um, you know, when you look at the the representatives and, and senators in Congress, and it's a very similar story, um, when the president says something that is causing ripples uh, in the press, um, a lot of times you'll hear that from them, too. Oh, Well, well he, he speaks for himself, but we're still behind his agenda. And this sort of thing, and I, you know, in in DC politics terms, that is, it's very very unusual. Like you said, I mean, usually, you know, everyone's on the same page and we rally behind the president. Uh, these days, it's well, we still want it. Basically, we still want the tax cuts. Get get us the tax cuts, <laughs> and and we'll let him say whatever whatever he wants. Um, and how long that can last? Is it an untenable situation? Have we,
0: have we really got a, a one-issue government? Is that what this is? A one-issue government that the cohesion, the glue that keeps the Republican Party together is tax cuts? Well, in a
6: way, I think the Republicans have gathered up a a lot of one-issue voters uh, under Trump. You know, you you have your people... Yeah, but the
0: one issue is very different. (laughs) Yeah, very, very different
6: issues. You you get a collection of issues together. But if I had to pick one out of the group, absolutely, the the tax cuts, I think, are going to make or break them uh, in the midterms and and the future elections, you know, and, you know... it's going to be an interesting September, John, I got to say, because I've said this all along. I, I These guys that are really from the Tea Party background who yeah. really do not want deficits, do not want uh, more debt. Um, they're going to have a very tricky uh, negotiation to, to get this tax through, to make it revenue neutral, to not really uh, cause the deficit and the debt to, to balloon any further. It's not going to be easy and it's not going to make everyone happy. So it, I, I would prepare for more more cantankerousness. That's Mike
0: Regan, I mean. I'm looking forward to it, and you'll be here to discuss it <laughs> with me. <I'm> Mike <laughs> Regan, the senior editor and lead blogger from Bloomberg Markets Live, not looking forward to it. For the City of London, back to work tomorrow, I'm sure for many of you. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg Radio.